0: But what I want to sort of set the stage for this conference this week this way, Steve hinted at this, he read from the brochure. What I want to do before we pray and move into tonight's discussion is make you aware that we are actually beginning to see a tidal wave once again in the the so-called evangelical world. There's a tidal wave of scholarship that is seeking to undermine the very thing that we might say make us evangelicals. I put it simply this way. There is even a move within evangelicalism to say that the Bible is inerrantly errant. And the idea behind that is this, is that the Bible is filled with errors and God inerrantly meant it to be so. Now, there's much more I could say about that, but what I want you to realize is that within the church of Jesus Christ, that's pillar of truth, if you will, the very foundations are being challenged. Now, I want you, if you don't come away with anything else this weekend, I want you to be able to go home and say, I can trust God at His Word. Because He has spoken. He has not stuttered. He has spoken truthfully. He has spoken clearly. And my prayer and Jeff's prayer and Steve's prayer for you over this weekend's conference is that you will genuinely have a deeper sense of of awe for God's self-revelation in His Word and that you can put your head on your pillow at night with full confidence that God has not deceived you but has indeed spoken truthfully. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in this world of change, of vicissitude, of unpredictability. This world in which we find ourselves not knowing what tomorrow holds. We thank You that we have a place. We have an anchor. We have a rock. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have spoken clearly. You have spoken truthfully. We thank You that you are a God who is fully worthy of our trust. Father, I pray that you would encourage these people tonight as we consider what your word has to say about change and unchangeability. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was May 30th, 2003, and on the big screen came Finding Nemo. The movie Finding Nemo grossed on the big screen nearly $865 million. By 2006, it had sold the most DVDs in history, some 40 million. Now, why is this movie so popular? If you think about the theme, it's really no big deal. It's a lost son and a father goes to find him. That's the plot. Not all that sophisticated, but what makes Nemo work are the characters. I want to talk about two of the characters as we begin tonight. The first one is Marlin. Those of you who have seen the film know that Marlon is the overprotective father. He is a worrier. He is paralyzed with fear about what might happen. He lives at all times, with this notion that around the next bend in the deep blue sea is going to be a peril that will overwhelm and overtake him. And yet, Marlon, in the midst of the panic of his heart, in the midst, in the midst of the tenseness of his gills, if you will, Martin, or Marlon demonstrates an impenetrable strength to go after his son. Then there's Dory. Oh, Dory. Dory is the consummate forgetter fish. In fact, Dory claims, she thinks, if she remembers correctly, that amnesia runs in her family. She is a carefree spirit and she lives sort of foolishly finding herself totally un, unconcerned about all the, the problems of the deep blue abyss. She seems clueless. She cannot remember anything. She can't even remember Nemo's name. She calls him Fabio. She calls him Elmo, Bingo, Chico, Harpo. That's Dory. Then there's this one scene between Marlon and Dory. Marlon's down in the dumps again, and this is how the conversation goes. Dory says, hey there, Mr. Grumpy Gills. When life gets you down, you know what you got to do? Marlon says, no, and I don't want to know. And then Dory begins to sing. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming, 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 she sings. Now these exaggerated characters of Marlin and Dory typify the range of human emotion as we seek to engage life and face the changes, the unknowns, the sufferings, the conflicts, the dangers. Marlin is that person who is terrorized by the very next molecule of water. He's completely paralyzed, traumatized by the inevitability of misfortune. Change means certain demise for Marlon. Then there's Dory. On the opposite extreme, she she floats in a world of her own. And I do believe that the film itself portrays her in a way that this amnesia is almost a forced amnesia, so she doesn't have to worry about her life, worry about her tomorrow. Now, I want to reel us in for just a minute minute, to the worlds in which we swim. About our own unknowns, the financial unknowns of tomorrow, the economic uncertainties, the uncertainty of health, the uncertainty of family, the alienation of loved ones, the choices our children make. Life is filled with change. If I was to take a poll tonight and ask you, how many of you like change? Probably not a single hand would go up. But let me push you a little bit further. Why is it that we don't like change? What is it about change that makes us not want to face change? You see, it's really not change, is it? It's the fear of what change might bring. It's the fear that the change might bring something worse. It's the fact that change is outside of our control. Sometimes people do some pretty crazy things to control change. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, back in 2007... A gentleman by the name of Anthony Miller, 59 years old, walked into a bank in Lancaster, armed with a BB gun. And he walked up to the teller, pulled out the BB gun, and said, hand over the money. And while you're handing over the money, call the police, please. She begins to hand over the money, she calls the police, he stands there waiting and says, when are they coming? Three times he begs her to call them back to make sure they will get there. Why? Because he wanted to go to jail. Why did he want to go to jail? There's one answer. He wanted change from an overbearing wife. (laughs) And Anthony Miller believed that the prison of his existence in the four walls of his home was worse than the federal penitentiary. Anthony Miller tried to take matters into his own hands. Aldous Huxley is famous for saying the only completely consistent people are dead. (laughs) Let me, before we dive into our focal consideration tonight, point you in another direction. This is a common approach in the psychological and counseling world as it comes to change. Listen to this psychologist. Change has considerable psychological impact on the human mind. To the fearful, it is threatening because it means that things may get worse. To the hopeful, it is encouraging because things may get better. To the confident, it is inspiring because the challenge exists to make things better. Obviously then, one's character and frame of mind determine how readily he brings about change and how he reacts to change that is imposed on him. Notice that the focus of this quote is on the attitude, on the perspective. But I want to ask you a question, is that adequate? Is reckoning with change, reckoning with the unknown, reckoning with the uncertainties and vicissitudes of life is the key to doing that merely a function of my attitude? Because if it is, it turns our reality completely in on us. And we become the key. But let me push it a little bit further. What if we were to do statistical analysis on the changes in your life? And we were able to demonstrate that 72% of the time, the changes in your life have been good. What if it was 59%? Does that give grounds? Good enough grounds to claim that the way in which we must face change and uncertainty about tomorrow is grounded in my attitude? I think the great old adage... Of facing change, if that is the case, is right when it says, when in danger or in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. Because if unpredictability of life is dealt with merely on the basis of my attitude, I would suggest to you that worry is the only right response. What we want to do tonight is to consider change from a biblical perspective. What is it that we should consider when we look at the notion of change in our lives? Should we have a Marlin-esque response? Swimming ahead, hoping that the light in front of us is not that of an anglerfish? Should we respond like Dory and neglect problems and live in a world of our own? As we think about the Scriptures tonight, let me just make some general comments, then we're going to focus on a couple of primary texts. Where is it that the Bible places change? Well, if you were to walk through the entire Scripture, let's just think about the Old Testament for just a minute. One of the themes of the Old Testament as we see Old Testament history unfolding. That even within the covenant community, the old covenant people, kings rise, kings fall. But simultaneously, outside of Israel, nations rise, nations fall. Nations rise, nations fall. And behind that, the Old Testament consistently points us to... The King of heaven, who does not change, but always reigns. Even as you close the Old Testament, the very last book, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, the Lord says, I, the Lord your God, do not change. Put in stark contrast to the nations of this world, God is an unchanging God. I want to ask you to take your Bible for a moment now and turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. We're actually going to start with this text, and then we're going to circle back around to it at the end of our time. And Steve, since you didn't get me on until 7.30, I'm going to go a little beyond 8. So that means, Jeff, you get to go a little longer, too. Hebrews chapter 6, just want to turn your attention to verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let me focus for just a few moments here on this phrase at the end of verse 17, the unchangeable character of God's purpose. The unchangeable God of heaven who is not influenced because He transcends the creation. He is not a God that is somehow shaped or moved or pushed in a direction that is contrary to who He is and what His will is. His will is absolutely unchangeable. It will not be compromised. Now, knowing that about God, let us take a step back. And I just want you to think through with me the very opening pages of the Bible. Because what I want to address first and foremost tonight is, what is the source of change? Think about the creation itself. What I will say to you tonight is this, is that the God who does not change, guess what? He is the one who created change. I want you to think about this just for a few moments. Change is actually woven into the very fabric of creation itself. Genesis 1 and 2. God created the heavens and the earth. That which was not now was. That is a change. Take it a step further. God in the creation of the world, creation of the universe, created a world in which there were was time. The very... Creation days themselves establish the days, the seasons, the years. At the very beginning of Genesis, we see that time began and time was aimed towards a particular destiny. The beginning was to be different than the end. God created change. This was not a static earth as we think about Adam and Eve in the garden, as we think about the animals that procreate, the living beings live. They grow. There's change. Why would God put change into His world? There's a singular answer from Genesis 1 and 2. Because laid out for Adam and Eve with the covenant that God gave them in the garden was a promised destiny. And why did God lay that promise of a blessed future for obedience and a curse of death for disobedience? Because of this primary reason. God established those made in His image To listen to His Word. To trust His Word. Change was built into the very creation order itself so that Adam and Eve would be faced with the opportunity and responsibility to obey the voice of God, to listen to the voice of God, to exercise faith and dependence on His Word. The covenant that was established in the garden was this. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will die. Change is built in. The very notion of the Sabbath that we see first mentioned in the second chapter of Genesis verses 1 and following. The promise of an eternal Sabbath is built into Genesis 1 and 2. There was going to be a different existence for Adam and Eve in glory than there was going to be in the Garden of Eden. Change was built into God's world. Now I think that is important for us as we think about change today. Because change is not the consequence of the fall. Change is something that God built into His world. He was calling Adam and Eve to a full confidence in His Word to do what He called them to do for an implicit obedience. I love what the great old faculty member from Westminster Theological Seminary, Cornelius Van Til, in his consideration of the days of of creation and explicitly the covenants in Genesis 2, talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden as an arbitrary tree. Now, let me explain to you what he means by that and what he doesn't mean by that. He doesn't mean that in the postmodern sense that that was random, as our young people are often saying. What he means was that the tree that was selected, it would not have been obvious to Adam and Eve that that tree was not to be touched. It was not obvious to them in the garden that they were not to eat of that tree apart from the Word of God, which required Adam and Eve to do what? To not trust their own wisdom, but actually to trust the Word of the Lord. Why is change in the world? It is there for us to trust God the Creator. And One of the consistent themes that you have throughout the Scripture is, why can we trust the Word of God? Because it is the Word of God. God is a trustworthy God, and therefore what He speaks is trustworthy, and there is absolutely no breach between the two. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. In the midst of the changing world, there is an unchanging Word that comes from an unchanging God. This text from Isaiah 40 is repeated in 1 Peter chapter 1. And this word is to be heard. It is to be trusted. It is to be obeyed. For Adam and his descendants to walk by faith and not by sight. Remember, all of that is before the fall. Well, after Genesis 1 and 2 comes what? Genesis 3. Genesis 3. You know what happened in Genesis 3. Sin entered the scene. And sin changed change. Because now what is true about change is vastly different than what was true about change before the fall. Because before the fall, what made change non-threatening was that Adam and Eve were to know, based upon the Word of God, that if they obeyed, change would always bring something better. But now, by the tyranny of disobedience, the transformation of transformation took place. Change was changed disaster ensued hope was destroyed and the certain future hope was replaced by certain death change was corrupted in the fall and introduced now into this world which god had made was a change that was leading Adam and all of his descendants to final, cursed judgment and damnation. And change became a matter of terror, of alienation. But in the midst of the tyranny the imperishable Word of God comes as Peter describes it in 1 Peter 1.23. Because we find in Genesis 3 in verse 15 what is known in theology as the first mention of the Gospel. That in the midst of the transformation of change, the changing of change to where change was something that was to be feared, God speaks a word of promise. And we are then called on the basis of that word of promise to trust God not only for a glorious end, but for a redemption to bring us to that glorious end. God's call to us, even after the fall, is no different than that call was before the fall. To trust Him at His word. And we trust His Word because it comes from Him, the unchanging God. Well, we know from the unfolding of the pages of Scripture, as we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 6, as promised then even through Abraham, that the coming of the Messiah was in fulfillment of that promise in Genesis chapter 3, repeated more fully to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, that in Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the unfolding of the pages of the Old Testament come to the place, and what we find in the Gospels and the New Testament is that the answer to the change of change is the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the extraordinary message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me think of it this way with you. He... Who knew no change became change for us. He changed change. He reversed the curse. And in the person of Jesus Christ, by His faithful obedience, and as Hebrews chapter 5 tells us, this Son who learned obedience through the things which He suffered, Jesus Christ as the God-Man was changed in His earthly existence to the place when at the cross, when He stretched out and died and said, It is finished. He died and was buried and was then a Uh, risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Jesus Christ, who knew no change, became change for us. And in Him is the place in which we find hope. So what about the changes that we face? What do we do about the vicissitudes of life? We do what God called Abraham to do. We do what God called David to do. We do what God called Moses and Joshua to do. Indeed, we do what God called Adam in the garden to do. And that is to trust, to set our hearts on the unchangeable, unchanging Word of God. The author of Hebrews later in this book puts it this way, set your eyes on the author and perfecter, the consummator, the finisher of your faith. We need not float along in a feigned existence like Dory. Pretending like suffering is not real. We need not, like Marlin, with gritted teeth, fear tomorrow. No, we can rest wholeheartedly in the God who was faithful to do what He promised that He would do. And I turn your attention back to Hebrews chapter 6 for just a moment. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Let me stop there for just a moment. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that God promised, he spoke a promise, God gave an oath. He spoke that oath. Two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie because He is truth itself. We are called to set our minds and hearts on that God. But there's something else about change that I want you to think about before we wrap up tonight. Paul tells us, In 1 Corinthians 15, the following, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed! We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Guess who else was? Jesus Christ. We are transformed in Him. We are changed in Him. And we, Paul says, shall be changed. Why is it that we can hope in the midst of an unpredictable world well, we can hope and we can trust the Word of God. God did not just promise. He did not just give an oath. But He fulfilled everything in Jesus Christ. Let me put it again this way. He who knew no change became change for us that we might be changed to unchangeability. He who knew no change, the Almighty God Himself, the Eternal Son, became flesh. He was changed. He took on change. He who knew no change became change for us that we might be changed to unchangeability. That is our hope. The people in Hebrews... The people to whom the book of Hebrews is addressed had a question. Let me summarize the question this way. If Jesus Christ is really the Messiah, if He is really the Son of God, if He is really the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen, if He is the one in whom all of our hope is to rest, why does our life stink? That's the question that the people in the first century were asking. And the author of Hebrews answers it this way. He says, As you think about your existence in this time when you are waiting for this Jesus to come back, you are living an existence that is analogous to the old covenant people of God in this way. They were redeemed from bondage in Egypt. And they live in the wilderness. And during that period of wilderness wandering, they have not yet entered the promised land, but they have been fully redeemed. The author of Hebrews says, you people of God. Yes, Jesus is the one who will lead many sons to glory, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the one who is the fulfillment of all that God promised. But your existence is like the old covenant people. You have been fully bought. You have been fully redeemed. But you are living in the wilderness. And guess what God does for his people in the wilderness? He provides their needs every day. Not for tomorrow, but for today. God cares for His people. And there will be a day when you will cross the Jordan and you will enter the promised land. How do we know? Because all of the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. He who knew no change became change for us that we might be changed to unchangeability. So what do we do in this volatile world? What do we do with this volatile life? Hebrews 6.19, read that again with me. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. You know the imagery from the Old Testament. This is the place of the Holy of Holies. That anybody stained with sin cannot go. Or they will surely die. But there is One who took on change for us. So that we might be changed to unchangeability, so that when we now enter the holy place, we are covered by His blood. The blood of the one who was not only the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, but the one who indeed is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 20 where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You know why we can go into the holy of holies? Cuz he's already led us there. We have full access to the throne of grace. We have full assurance of the hope that is laid before us because Jesus Christ has taken the corrupted change of our hearts upon Himself. And He has changed that change and brought us to unchangeability. The anchor of your soul is the Word of God. His promise, His oath, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. He has fulfilled In the Word incarnate. As we close this session this evening, let me just remind you of a few things. First of all, God does not change, He doesn't change. He is not like us. Secondly, God designed change in this world for our trust in His unchangeable, unchanging Word. Thirdly, and if we had time, we'd look at this more fully tonight, but just stick your in your notes, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 and following. Really, verse 1 and following. Really, the whole book of Hebrews. (laughs) It is this, that my changes are unchangeably part of His perfect plan. The author of Hebrews tells us that we can have absolute confidence He tells us to strengthen our weak knees, not based on our own strength, but based upon the fact that the forerunner, Jesus Christ, has gone ahead for us. My changes are unchangeably part of His plan. fourthly, also from Hebrews 12, James 1, many other places, my changes are for my good. Do you know that God is not like the Dallas Cowboys? He does not fumble. There are no oopses from the God of heaven in your life. There is nothing that comes into your life that is not part of His good and perfect plan to bring you from changeability to unchangeability in His glorified Son. There are no oopses in your life. Fifthly, and finally, you and I are destined for a perfect, final change. It's not always going to be like this, folks. We will not always be wandering in the wilderness. But as we wander, we needn't wonder. Because the God of heaven who is unchanging has promised to take us to unchangeability. So when the trials and troubles come, don't pick up a BB gun and go into a bank. Don't take on the character of Marlon and grit your teeth through life. Do not take on the character of Dory and seek to float through this world and hope for the best. If you're doing any of those things, God calls you to repent. And He calls you to trust in His Son. The One who knew no change that became change for us that we might be changed to unchangeability. For his name's sake. Let us pray. Almighty God, unchanging Father, you have called us to trust you at your word. Forgive us for the ways in which we cast our eyes from right to left. seeking help and assistance from places that are as much a problem with change as we ourselves. But instead, you call us to set our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who has taken the vicissitudes, the changes, indeed the desperate wickedness of our sin upon himself, and his blood has been spilled for us. And yet death could not hold him down, just like it cannot us. Because we, even as he has been resurrected and transformed, will also be changed to unchangeability. Not for our glory, but for yours alone. Oh God, help your people to trust you at your word. And to rest our hearts with full confidence upon thus saith the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.